And welcome to Scream Scene, the horror movie podcast where we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order, and then we rank them from best to worst. I'm Ben. I'm Sarah. Thanks for listening to us today. (laughs) How are you doing, Ben? We've got a very busy month this month, and it just seems to be a huge challenge to fit everything into our schedule. For folks who don't follow us on Twitter, we are hosting... Jack Kirby kind of film festival events with our friends this entire month of August because at the end of August it's Jack Kirby's 100th birthday. Yeah, I mean it's we're really just watching a bunch of movies based on Kirby comics and then just inviting people over to our house, but we're doing one like every single night. Yeah. <laughs> uh well what are we watching tonight? Is it Jack Kirby related? Mm, No, that would be very weird. (laughs) This week's movie is one that I've been looking forward to, like, ever since we started doing this podcast, because it's one of my (laughs) all-time favorite horror movies. Uh, This week's episode, we are talking about the 1931 Hollywood adaptation of Dracula, starring Bela Lugosi. Such a good movie. And we're in sound. We made our first foray into sound last week. But it's still, like, super cool that we're in sound. I mean, Dracula is sort of a weird one for that because it's almost like got one foot in each door yeah. in a lot of ways, stylistically, as a film. Uh, now, obviously, this isn't the first version of the Dracula story that we've covered on the show. We already did the unofficial <laughs> German silent adaptation Nosferatu. From um, 1922. Yes, But this film was an official adaptation with all the right legal permissions um, (laughs) to adapt Bram Stoker's novel. So in our Nosferatu episode, we kind of talked about vampire folklore and kind of briefly touched base on Bram Stoker and his novel. But with this being an official adaptation, I thought we should go into a bit more depth about Stoker and the original book. And oh boy, is there depth. (laughs) There is so much about Bram Stoker. There's so much about the book. There's so much about Dracula. So this episode might end up being just as long as Phantom of the Opera. Uh, So Bram Stoker was born in 1847. He lived until 1912. Uh, He was 64 when he passed away. And he was born near Dublin, Ireland uh, and grew up in County Sligo. And for people who are also interested in Irish history, Bram Stoker was Protestant. He was the third of seven children, which is quite a lot, Um, and he was actually bedridden until he was seven years old. But he grew out of it, basically, um, and didn't even have any ill effects later in life. Uh, When he was in university at Trinity College, he actually was an athlete there. Well, good for him for growing out of horrible (laughs) illness, I guess. So he was at Trinity College from 1864 to 1870, where he earned himself a Bachelor of Arts in Math. Funny enough, when he was in college, he had been president of the college's philosophy society, and he knew Oscar Wilde through that society. You know, I think I knew that he knew Oscar Wilde. (laughs) I'm trying to remember in what context I knew that, but I think it has something to do with Florence Stoker? Yes. Okay. Their lives intersected quite a few times. Okay. So after graduating, uh, Stoker, he'd always been 
pretty interested in literature, um, and he became interested in theater and became the theater critic for the Dublin Evening Mail. Mm -hmm. Through these reviews, uh, he became friends with stage actor Henry Irving after reviewing his stage adaptation of Hamlet at Theatre Royale. And Henry Irving's quite the character. There's so much on him as well, so if you want to learn more about him, I recommend googling him. <laughs> he's one of the most famous actors of the time, so he's kind of a big deal. During this time, Stoker was uh, writing his own content. Uh, he was writing short stories such as The Crystal Cup uh, in 1872 and the story Chain of Destiny, which was published in periodicals throughout 1872. He was also writing nonfiction, and the thing that came up with the nonfiction was duties of clerks of petty sessions. So it sounded like he was a technical writer for a little bit. Sure, yeah. <laughs> so that was throughout the 70s, uh, the 1870s. In 1878, he married this lovely woman named Florence Balcom. Uh, her previous suitor was Oscar Wilde. Right, yes. <laughs> and I guess uh, Oscar Wilde was a little upset about... Florence moving on to Stoker, but he got over it. <laughs> right. <laughs> Bram and Florence Stoker moved to London, where Stoker became first the acting manager and then the business manager of Henry Irving's Lyceum Theatre. Mm -hmm. He did this job for 27 years. Wow. Which is really cool. So from when he was around 31 years old to around 58. Through Irving... Stoker kind of got this invitation into high society. Sure. Uh, where he would meet James Abbott McNeil Whistler and Arthur Conan Doyle and uh, Hall Kane, who's another big name. And uh, Hall Kane and Bram Stoker actually became good friends. Cool. Which is cool. With his dealings with Irving, uh, Stoker would travel across the world, uh, never visiting Eastern Europe, for the record, but he also traveled to the United States. He was invited twice to the White House, and he knew William McKinley, Theodore Roosevelt, and actually got to meet Walt Whitman as well. Mm -hmm. So while Bram Stoker was manager at the Lyceum Theater, he was still writing and actually had started writing more novels rather than short stories, though he was still writing short stories. Some of the novels that he was writing was The Snake's Pass in 1890, Dracula, of course, in 1897, Lady of the Shroud in 1909, and his last novel was Lair of the White Worm in 1911. He wrote many more novels than that. Um, he wrote many other short stories, and he was also a part of London's Daily Telegraph literary staff. Just interesting to note how he was doing a day job at a theater while still writing mm -hmm. and making what seemed like a fairly good living through that as well. Mm -hmm. It's kind of neat. Henry Irving died in 1905, and uh, something else that Stoker published was a nonfiction book titled Personal Reminiscences of Henry Irving. He published that in 1906, and it did fairly well. Uh, so it seemed like they were pretty close. So like I said, Bram Stoker, with working with the Lyceum Theatre, got to meet a whole whack of different characters. One such person was Hungarian writer and traveler Armin van Barry, who would tell him stories about the Carpathian Mountains and folklore from Hungary, including vampire folklore. Mm -hmm. After that, Stoker would spend several years researching East European folklore. Stoker was also pretty influenced by Emily Girard's 1885 essay, Transylvania Superstitions. Okay, yep. Yeah. And so all of this folklore around vampire myths. 
Most likely he was also very inspired by Carmilla, a vampire novel by Sheridan Le Fanu. Mm-hmm. With these ideas in his head, Stoker took a visit to Whitby, England in 1890. Everyone kind of points to this trip as when he was inspired to write the novel Dracula. Okay. But what I kind of want to point out is that he was thinking about these ideas already. Right. He was already very interested in the occult. Um, he was very much pro-science and progress, but, I mean, in this time period, especially in England, uh, Aleister Crowley is already, like, based in London at this time. There's a lot of chatter about the occult. Sure, sure. Stoker actually had several friends in the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn. Which, oh, boy. Yeah. Stoker himself is not involved. At least there's no proof of him being involved, but he did have friends involved. Uh, and that was in order. They studied the occult. And I'll just leave it at that. Okay. He had all these thoughts already kind of going in his head when he went to Whitby, but part of the reason why everyone points to this Whitby trip is because it's a setting in the novel. Yeah, yeah, the uh, Carfax Abbey is in Whitby. Yeah, and um, it's where Dracula first lands uh, because the shipwrecks and yeah. all these things. So I'm not going to fault people for pointing to this. Irving himself was actually uh, a big inspiration for Dracula mm-hmm. um, with his mannerisms and charming personality. Stoker had actually hoped Irving would play Dracula in a play adaptation. Right. But uh, that, that never really happened. The vampire literature that is before Dracula, there's not a whole lot, even with all of this interest in the occult, and uh, all of the gothic horror literature that we've kind of already talked about in previous episodes. Mm -hmm. Um, It's definitely a trend, though. So vampire literature before Dracula includes Sheridan Le Fanu's Carmilla from 1871, James Malcolm Reimer's Varney the Vampire Serial, which was published between 1845 and 47, and John Polidori's story The Vampire from 1819. And actually it's in Polidori's story that uh, he imagines vampires as aristocratic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, that's the beginning of the... Fancy vampire. <laughs> yeah, the vampire as a seductive, high-class man instead of just a like a low-class peasant rural thing. Mostly because he's just making fun of Lord Byron. <laughs> I mean, who wouldn't? So Dracula, the novel, fits into this trend of gothic horror and vampire literature, but it also really fits in with this other trend of literature at the time called invasion literature. Okay. So it's this really niche genre of England being threatened by continental forces. Okay. Which it's like, in the wake of Brexit, it's really interesting to see that these fears have been existing since the 1800s. Yeah, yeah, these are not new. The The socio-political concerns of 2017 are not <laughs> new. Between, like, 1815 and 1914, Britain is in the height of, like, its imperial tendencies, I guess. I don't know. Sure, yeah. Imperialist the, the, Britain. Yeah, but the British Empire is almost kind of at its at its zenith at this point in history. Yeah, so Britain being at its peak in terms of colonizing the world and then this trend of niche literature about the fear of being invaded is so interesting mm-hmm. to me. And I would love to look into it, but not on this podcast. <laughs> Dracula fits into that because, you know, Eastern European thing, bringing death to England, etc., etc. Corrupting your women. Exactly. 
almost exclusively women. Yeah. It's actually a thing I'm frustrated about, but whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, let me tell you guys about the plot. I, I tried to paraphrase this a bit. Since the novel is written as a series of letters, diary entries, newspaper clippings, and ship's logs, mm-hmm. um, it's long. Yeah. And has a lot of, like, extraneous stuff going on. Yeah, it's very fragmented. It's it was a, a genre of novel that was super popular at the time though the epistolary uh, format where it was supposed to it, it's like the like Victorian novel equivalent of a found footage movie yeah where it's just supposed to like give it authenticity because it's like no these are like diary entries and newspaper clippings they can't all be lying yeah it's it's like it's like like Dracula is like the eighteen ninety seven version of the Blair Witch Project. <laughs> So yeah, I've tried to paraphrase this as much as possible, but here we go. So Jonathan Harker is a new solicitor who is visiting Dracula and offering legal advice over a real estate deal. Mm-hmm. Harker is impressed by Dracula's manners. Visiting Dracula in Transylvania. Yes, yes, in Transylvania. Harker is impressed by Dracula's manners, but he comes to realize that he's actually a prisoner. Despite Dracula's warnings, Harker wanders the grounds and wanders into the West Wing, as it were, and runs into three lady vampires who are called the Sisters. Um, He's rescued by Dracula, but once Dracula moves out and leaves, John is is left to these vampire women, uh, Mm. and he barely escapes with his life. Dracula boards a Russian ship with uh, 50 boxes of soil. The standard, uh, the ship gets taken over by the vampire, like, people start disappearing, the captain straps himself to the steering wheel of ships, um, and it crashes. That's all pretty standard from, like, other adaptations, but the important thing is, is that the ship crashes at Whitby, England. Mm -hmm. Whitby is also where Lucy Westenra happens to be vacationing, and... Even though Lucy is best friend of Mina Murray, John Harker's fiance, that's not really why Dracula starts stalking Lucy. Uh, he just starts doing it because she's a pretty lady. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's coincidental. Yeah. <laughs> Lucy starts having sleepwalking and dementia episodes at the same time as having to choose between three suitors, Dr. Seward, Quincy Morris, and Arthur Holmwood. Uh, she eventually accepts Holmwood's proposal, And I should mention that Dr. Seward, one of the suitors, runs an asylum, and one of his patients is Renfield, uh, who Dracula starts to communicate with. Renfield's whole thing about, like, oh, eating bugs and things like that, that's the whole same deal. Even though Lucy has chosen Homewood as her fiancé, her other suitors still hang around and are friends, (laughs) uh, which is funny to me. But it comes in handy because Lucy continues wasting away, so Dr. Seward invites his old teacher, Dr. Van Helsing, to come and examine her. To skim over some things, Lucy dies. After she dies, there's reports of children being stalked at night in playgrounds by a beautiful lady covered in white. Van Helsing is like, shit, son. Lucy's a vampire. Mm-hmm. Um, and he shares this with the suitors, so they track her down and, I guess, destroy her. You can't really kill the undead. Yeah, they, they like, <laughs> stake her and chop off her head and do all the, the standard vampire disposal. Maneuvers? Yeah. At the same time, Harker finally arrives back from Transylvania, having survived his experience with the three sisters, and Harker and Mina are married, and they join the fight against Dracula. Mm-hmm. 
The novel goes into more detail about this, but suffice it to say, it's kind of like a montage of this Scooby gang looking for the 50 boxes of soil that Dracula has scattered around London uh, as like safe spots for him to go and regenerate. And yeah, the gang's looking for those boxes to go out and destroy them. Um, throughout this time, Dracula attacks Mina three times. Doesn't attack the dudes, but yeah. attacks Mina three times. Yeah, it's, it's, if Stoker contributed anything to vampire literature, it was the, like, heterosexual vamp attack motif that, like, vampires attack, like, opposite gender victims. During these attacks, Dracula has Mina drink some of his blood in order to control her, but Van Helsing finds a way to use this to actually track Dracula, who has hightailed it back to Transylvania with his last box of soil. Mm -hmm. They're on the trail back to Transylvania to pursue him. Um, they split up with Van Helsing and Mina going to the castle where Van Helsing destroys those three sisters. And Harker and the gang, Dr. Seward, Quincy, Morris, and Arthur Holmwood, go to where Dracula should be landing on uh, the coast to ambush the boat. They miss him, and so later they ambush the Roma caravan that Dracula is mm -hmm. being transported by. In the fight with Dracula, Quincy is mortally wounded, but Dracula is killed. And uh, with Dracula being destroyed, Mina is cured of any kind of hints of vampirism. Um, and then the novel ends with an epilogue of sorts, with Harker telling the reader uh, about what's happened in the seven years since with Mina and his son. Mm -hmm. Something that's kind of interesting and tertiary to this whole topic is that um, in 1914, there was a short story published called Dracula's Guest. It was actually supposed to be the first chapter of the original novel, um, but it was omitted because it's kind of superfluous, you don't really need it, but why not publish it if your book's popular, right? Yeah. <laughs> so to just kind of like tell you what the short story is right quick, there's an English traveler who's traveling across Eastern Europe. He's staying at an inn in Transylvania. Uh, he is headed towards Dracula's castle, and he ignores the innkeeper's warnings about staying inside at night, and so he wanders the grounds and he makes his way to a graveyard where he wanders inside a crypt, as you do, and sees this countess asleep. She's supposed to be dead. She's actually just asleep. To kind of skip ahead, <laughs> the crypt gets struck by lightning. This English traveler, who's unnamed, somehow survives and like runs away. Um, it's snowing. There's wolves tracking him down. And he falls down and like uh, kind of passes out and kind of wakes up. And there's this giant wolf sitting on his chest, licking the traveler's neck. And then uh, he makes his way back to the inn, where there is a telegram from Dracula waiting for him, warning him of staying out of snow and being staying away from wolves. Right. Uh, and that's the story. Yeah. The novel Dracula has a lot of weight in our pop culture today. Right. Um, as well as, like, Bram Stoker himself. But what's kind of interesting is that... It didn't have a lot of popularity until the whole rights debacle with Nosferatu in 1922. Okay. That kind of put the novel and the Stoker name back into the public's eye, mm -hmm. and it started to get a bit more popularity because of that. 
that led to the play. I had also heard that because of the legal battle that Florence Stoker had over Nosferatu, like, she almost, like, wanted the play done so that there'd be, like, an official version or something like that. Yeah, definitely. Uh, Stoker had written an adaptation for the Lyceum Theater to perform in 1897, but it was only performed once, and it was really just to establish copyright for performances. Florence Stoker licensed the story to a Hamilton Dean for a 1924 adaptation, Hamilton Dean, uh, it's kind of an interesting character. Um, he was also Irish. His life kind of follows Bram Stoker a little bit in okay. interesting ways. The Dean family grew up um, in sort of the same neighborhood as Florence Balcom's family. And one of Dean's parents actually knew of Stoker in Trinity College. Okay. In 1899, uh, Hamilton Dean worked with the Irving Company. He started his own troupe in the 1920s. And during a four-week period when he was bedridden with this really bad flu, Dean wrote the stage adaptation of Dracula. Mm -hmm. um, and then once he was better, he contacted Florence for the rights. So he wrote the stage adaptation in like... Four weeks with the flu. Right. So basically in that period when you're just completely like hallucinatory <laughs> and like have no idea what's going on. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Some of the changes that he had is uh, Mina and Lucy, their names get switched. Okay. So Mina dies rather than Lucy. Hmm. But like the characters are the same, just their names get switched. Weird. And in this stage adaptation, Dean reimagined Dracula as more of a bit of a an urban character who could plausibly enter Victorian society. This is where the uh, look of the tuxedo and stand-up collar came mm -hmm. from. And also the cape, but the cape was for a practical reason of making it easier for the actor to go down the trap doors and look like Dracula disappeared. Oh, okay, interesting. And just kind of like a funny side note of these stage performances is Hamilton Dean had hired a uniformed nurse to be in the theater as the play is going on uh, so that if anyone fainted, uh, she would have smelling salts to give them. I feel like that's almost more of a like... Publicity stunt? Yes, yeah. yeah. That totally feels like a publicity gimmick of like, we've got a nurse, this play's so scary, we've got a nurse on hand. Exactly. Yeah. Dean played Van Helsing, though he had originally wanted to play Dracula, hmm. uh, who played Dracula was Raymond Huntley, kind of a big deal dude. Yeah, and so the play traveled around England uh, after premiering in 1924, um, settled in London in 1927, which is where I believe the story hands off to you. Yeah, it is worth like emphasizing how much that play changed the concept of Dracula, especially with like portraying him as this kind of like attractive, upper-class, well-dressed guy, because he is, like, pretty explicitly made out to be kind of disgusting and weird and old and gross in the novel. Mm -hmm. The story of how the film Dracula came to be made begins from two points. One is Nosferatu, and the other is the play. So our story sort of begins... Really, in 1928, uh, the play, as you said, had kind of settled in London by 1927, and actually the play came to Broadway in 1927 and started being shown as a Broadway play in New York, uh, where it was very popular and successful, uh, starting in that year. But in 1928, Carl Lemley, who we've talked about before, uh, the owner and founder of Universal Studios, made his son, Carl Lemley Jr., the head of production for the studio as a 21st birthday present. 
So I wish that was my 21st. Actually, <laughs> I don't, because at 21, I would not be equipped to run a production department. Yeah, no kidding. Uh, so what this meant was that Junior was now in charge of day-to-day operations for the studio, deciding what movies got made, what got what amounts of money, uh, etc., while Senior retained ownership and was able to just kind of like take a more hands-off approach. Under Lemley Jr., Universal Studios modernized and began spending more money on higher quality productions, changing to sound, that sort of thing. They would actually end up winning Best Picture in 1930 for the film All Quiet on the Western Front. Then, in 1929, Nosferatu would actually see limited release in the United States, with all the names in the film changed to their Dracula versions because of the legal battles. Uh, This release of Nosferatu, however, was a failure, even while the play was doing very well on Broadway. Uh, And this is largely because it's 1929, and sound film was picking up speed, and this old 1922 silent film just looked antiquated next to it. But there was one person who saw that film, and that's Carl Lemley Jr., and he decided that it had definite box office potential as a film that would be in the same mold as Hunchback of Notre Dame or Phantom of the Opera or The Man Who Laughs. And so he decided to buy the film rights, which meant dealing with the Broadway play, which at the time was the only sort of authorized legal adaptation of the story. As you mentioned, Florence Stoker had sold the theater rights uh, to Dracula to Hamilton Dean in 1924. But when the play came to Broadway in 1927, the script was revised for American audiences by a man named John Balderston. Balderston made a lot of changes. Uh, He significantly reduced the number of characters. Most notably, he pretty much just got rid of there being two female characters and just comboed them Mm -hmm. uh, into one. So that uh, the character of Mina from the novel is, as you said, called Lucy in the play. And in the American play, there basically just isn't another female character. It's just Lucy. He also made the suitor character of Dr. Seward into her father. So she's now Lucy Seward and her dad is Dr. Seward, who runs the sanitarium. He also completely jettisoned the other suitors, Quincy Morris and Arthur Holmwood, so that the play would basically only have one male and one female lead, Jonathan Harker, Lucy Seward. The other big change is that the Broadway play opens with Dracula having already arrived in England. So the entire Transylvanian section of the story is not in there. Uh, It just starts with Dracula already in England uh, and actually begins with the death of the Mina character from mysterious circumstances, but she never comes back as a vampire or does anything uh, in regards to that. Lemley uh, bought the rights to the Broadway play, uh, which had run for 265 performances on Broadway before embarking on a nationwide tour. Wow. Uh, But from viewing Nosferatu, Lemley made the decision to restore the Transylvanian sequence to the start of the film. But since Jonathan Harker never goes to Dracula's castle in the play, Renfield was then made into the unlucky victim who goes to Dracula's castle as an explanation for his madness and devotion to Dracula later in the story. That makes sense. Makes the novel's happenstance and coincidental relationships between people have a bit more meaning and purpose. Yeah. It does create, like, a weird structure where, like, Renfield's our protagonist for, like, 20 minutes, and then it switches to other characters. Um, But that's largely so that they could use as much of the play as they could, kind of just intact. Initially, uh, Lemley wanted Paul Lenny 
to direct Dracula. Uh, that was the first choice, uh, but Lenny's 1929 death from sepsis required Lemley Jr. to pick a new director for his film. So, the decision was made to reunite Lon Chaney and Todd Browning for the film, even though both were working for MGM at the time. Chaney and Browning had produced what was arguably the first American vampire film, London After Midnight, mm. in 1927, uh, in which Chaney plays a detective trying to solve a murder by pretending to be a vampire. So great. That's the best way to solve crimes. <laughs> yes. Uh, London After Midnight was lost in a 1967 fire at the MGM vault, uh, leading it to become one of the most sought-after lost films of the silent era. Really all there is now from it is production stills. Yeah. MGM agreed to the loan of Browning and Chaney for Dracula, uh, but in 1930, Lon Chaney died of a throat hemorrhage, resulting from bronchial lung cancer that he had picked up after a long string of pneumonia in 1929. Oh. Uh, and this required the production of Dracula to be retooled again. Browning wanted to hire an unknown actor. He wanted, like, a native Transylvanian. And he wanted to have Dracula be a largely unseen menacing presence. Uh, but he was overruled by Lemley Jr. Uh, as the film's screenplay by Garrett Fort was supposed to be largely based on the Balderston play, which has Dracula in scenes throughout the story. Uh, so the casting of Dracula continued to prove problematic. Uh, Lemley considered many different actors to replace Chaney uh, and actively resisted the campaign to play him of the actor who had portrayed him on Broadway, Bela Lugosi. Mm-hmm. Born in 1882 in Lugos in the Kingdom of Hungary, which is now Lugos in Western Romania, Bela Lugosi acted with the National Theatre of Hungary from 1913 to 1919, but was forced to flee the country during the 1919 revolutions due to his political activism with the Actors' Union. In exile in Germany, he began appearing in small parts in films before immigrating to the United States in 1921. He joined a Hungarian theatrical company that performed for immigrant audiences in New York before breaking into English Broadway shows playing villains, lovers, or exotic types. In 1927, he was cast in the title role of the Broadway production of Dracula. And after it completed its West Coast run, Lugosi decided to stay in L.A. and try to break into Hollywood. Uh, upon hearing about Universal's Dracula production, Lugosi lobbied intensely for the role, uh, and what actually finally won him the part was he agreed to a mere $500 per week salary, which meant that he only made $3,500 for the whole film. Oh. Yeah. Uh, so he worked cheap, uh, so they let him do it, basically. Mm. Lugosi was joined from the Broadway production by Edward Van Sloan, who reprised his role from the play as Professor Van Helsing. Helen Chandler was cast as Mina Seward for the movie, <laughs> and David Manners was cast as Jonathan Harker. Chandler had been acting on Broadway since she was 11 and had won critical praise for her role in the 1930 film Outward Bound. She wasn't particularly enthusiastic about performing in Dracula, but then neither was her co-star David Manners. Manners was born Ralph DeRyther Dwan Acklam in Halifax, Nova Scotia to upper-class British parents. He dropped out of studying forestry at the University of Toronto from boredom 
and pursued an acting career over his family's objections, hence the name change. Oh boy, I didn't know he was Canadian, that's yeah. cool. Uh, he was discovered in Hollywood after James Whale met him at a party and took a shine to him, in Manners' words. Both Manners and Whale were known gay men in Hollywood at the time. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> his first film appearance was in Whale's critically acclaimed Journey's End, and by 1931, Manners was well on his way to stardom. He was openly disdainful of appearing in Dracula, however, characterizing the production as disorganized and proudly claiming to have never seen the finished film. As an early sound film, uh, Dracula still holds many of the hallmarks of silent cinema. Browning directed the film in a very silent film style, particularly the Transylvanian opening. Uh, before the material from the stage play got used. That was sort of the part of the film that he was allowed to kind of be the most creative about because it was unique for the film. Throughout the film, there are these long stretches of silence that are used, like a silent film. And in fact, a silent version of the film was even created for screening in cinemas that had not yet converted to sound. Uh, and the conversion was not very difficult because the film still had a lot of that silent cinema style to it. Uh, that being said, it was a sound film, and the film's sound effects were created by a man named Jack Foley, whose methods for creating post-production sound for synchronized sound effects were so universally adopted that the process now bears his name. Foley sounds mm -hmm. are post-production sound effects. Yeah. The film's cinematographer was Carl Freund, who shot The Golem, one of our previously viewed movies for this podcast, <laughs> uh, as well as famously shooting Fritz Lang's Metropolis. Mm -hmm. And he was actually the guy who invented the unchained camera technique for F.W. Murnau's film, The Last Laugh. Uh, he continues to use moving camera whenever he can in Dracula, despite often being hampered by the film's lengthy dialogue scenes. Due to the somewhat mixed reputation that this film has in certain modern critical circles, there has grown to be a tendency online to give Freund credit for directing parts of the film, often whatever parts the critic in question actually liked, mm. and then assigning the parts the critic didn't like to Browning. But there's no real evidence for the claim that Freund directed the movie, other than a quote from David Manners, who claimed that the shooting of the film was so disorganized that the only person he noticed directing anything was Freund. But David Manners was also not very invested in the shoot, uh, and was pretty disdainful of the whole process. Yeah, if you're not supportive of the film as a whole, like, I'm not going to trust what you have to say about, like, how the production schedule was going, you know? And if you're not paying attention, I could see a world where it'd be easy to mistake the cinematographer for the director. Yeah. But, yeah. As an early sound film, Dracula lacks a score other than the use of an excerpt from Swan Lake over the opening credits and some diegetic Wagner and Schubert later in the film. This, coupled with the film's long silent stretches and intertwined with lengthy dialogue scenes, can often make it a very dry affair for modern viewers to watch. So in 1998, Universal actually commissioned a score for the film to be written by Philip Glass yeah. and performed by the Kronos Quartet. Normally, I'm kind of a purist when it comes to vintage films, uh, but I feel like Dracula is actually much improved by the addition of a score, in the same way that 
any silent film would be improved by the addition of a score. And it's Philip Glass. Yeah, it's really good music. It also doesn't hurt that I grew up with that score because I had the VHS <laughs> tape version that had it growing up as a kid when I first saw this film as like an eight-year-old. Uh, so I tend to always watch the film with it as I find it adds a lot to the intensity. Any DVD or Blu-ray version of Dracula now has the option to see it with or without the Philip Glass score. Browning was continually clashing with Universal throughout the production of the film over costs, as he wished the film to have a wider scope, more similar to the novel, while Lemley wanted to stick to the relatively cheap blueprint of the stage play, which pretty much doesn't go anywhere. It just stays in drawing rooms in people's houses the whole way through. This resulted in many compromises uh, to save money, such as the scenes of the ship carrying Dracula at sea, actually being stock footage from the silent film, The Stormbreaker, uh, <laughs> which when then played at 24 frames per second to be intercut with the shots of Lugosi, give those scenes like a very artificially sped up kind of look because of the frame rate difference. Mm -hmm. The biggest risk that Universal took in making Dracula was that the film, for the most part, didn't undercut the horror with comic relief or rationalized explanations. Dracula's a vampire. He's not unmasked at the end of the movie as some other ridiculous thing. American audiences weren't used to overtly supernatural elements in film, as shown by the speech that actor Edward Van Sloan gave at the end of the picture. This speech was cut from later re-releases and is now lost. Okay. Basically, he steps out from behind a curtain at the end of the movie, sort of similar to the end of the Bat Whispers. Yeah. Uh, and he says to the audience, Just a moment, ladies and gentlemen. A word before you go. We hope the memories of Dracula and Renfield won't give you bad dreams, so just a word of reassurance. When you get home tonight, and the lights have been turned out, and you are afraid to look behind the curtains, and you dread to see a face appear at the window, why, just pull yourself together and remember that after all... There are such things as vampires. <laughs> um, Dracula was in many ways the first true American horror film. It's not a thriller or a comedy or a mystery. It's yeah. just horror. Luckily, the risk paid off as Dracula became a huge hit. It grossed just over a million dollars on a $355,000 budget. Nice. Uh, and it received largely positive reviews from critics at the time for its atmosphere and primarily for Lugosi's performance. Audience members reportedly fainted in shock during screenings, <laughs> and cheers ran out when Van Helsing would confront the Count. Lugosi's performance kind of became the iconic default of a male vampire, and the film's success launched the immediate production of many copycat efforts from both Universal and other rival studios, birthing the first major boom of the American horror film. Great. Uh, so how are we watching this? I think you own this movie. I would Actually, I would be shocked if you do not yeah, own I, this movie. Yeah, I definitely own this movie. There's a lot of ways to see Dracula. Uh, like, I owned this movie on VHS. I currently own it on DVD as part of what was called the Dracula Legacy Collection, which was a DVD set Universal put out that had all the Dracula movies on it for, like, a pretty low cost. And I think that Legacy collection has been re-released a few times, too, because mine came out in 2004 to promote 
the movie Van Helsing coming out. <laughs> uh, but I think they've re-released it since in the same kind of collection. And they've also released it on its own on DVD and Blu-ray several times. And this would still be with the Philip Glass score? Uh, you have the choice. Oh, so it's okay. just uh, because it's DVD, you just have an audio option yeah, choice yeah, yeah. to see with or without. If you don't have a copy of the film readily available, but you'd like to watch along, you can rent the film to stream uh, for about four bucks from the iTunes store, from the Cineplex app, or from the Microsoft or PlayStation video stores. And that's going to be probably the easiest way to stream along with us if you'd like to see the film. It's nice that we're finally covering a film that is so widely available. Yes. Especially covering some that have been like, sorry, don't know how you're going to find it. Yeah, for sure. Nice. Well, we're going to watch the film and listeners at home can watch along with us. Uh, Wait, is it added to the YouTube playlist? Uh, It is not on the YouTube playlist because there isn't a YouTube YouTube version to watch. Yeah. Well, normally I would give a spiel about you can check screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com to see the YouTube playlist, but uh, I guess not. I guess you can just like log into your iTunes where you are subscribed to the Scream Scene Podcast and you can search for the movie there. Until then, we're going to watch the movie and you'll hear a brief musical interlude. We will be right back. All right, we'll see you on the other side. Scream Scene. We just finished watching Dracula from 1931 by Todd Browning, and it's such a good movie. Yeah, I've been watching this movie for a very long time. It's only 90 minutes, Ben. Like, yeah, like, <laughs> what I mean to say is that, like, I've probably watched this movie, like, probably at least once a year since I was, like, eight years old. Mm-hmm. Uh, like, this is definitely one of my favorite movies. Uh, then I will let you handle the plot summary. Okay. The film opens in Transylvania with uh, Renfield, a solicitor, traveling to Dracula's castle. And uh, he comes to an inn where everyone warns him not to go to Dracula's castle because Dracula is a vampire. And Renfield sort of dismisses this as superstition and takes the carriage anyway. The carriage drivers, of course, will only take him so far. And so he's met by another carriage with a driver who looks a lot like Bella Lugosi <laughs> and has this odd property where light just shines into his eyes in the darkness so that they glow all the time, which is great. The carriage takes Renfield to Dracula's castle, where, of course, he is famously greeted by Count Dracula, who says all kinds of ominous things to him about (laughs) creatures of the night and spiders spinning their webs for unwary flies. Uh, Renfield shows Dracula some paperwork because Dracula is going to take the lease at Carfax Abbey in Whitby, England. Dracula leaves Renfield alone for the night when Renfield is accosted by three lady vampires, the wives of Dracula. Uh, But before they can really get to him, Dracula himself appears and waves them off uh, silently. This whole sequence is, is silent. A lot of the film has these long stretches of just visuals, and Dracula takes Renfield for himself. 
and then we sort of smash cut to a ship making its way to England with Dracula on board in the hold and Renfield with him having gone like totally mad <laughs> just just totally mad master <laughs> the sun's gone down master <laughs> i know you can't hear me <laughs> uh they arrive at whitby and everyone on board is dead the captain tied to the wheel except renfield who is so obviously mad that he is brought to the seward sanitarium and interred there uh, where he develops an obsession with eating flies for life Dracula, of course, has arrived in England now and starts preying on people in London. Uh, and he goes to a concert hall where he meets Dr. Seward because the Seward Sanitarium adjoins the grounds of Carfax Abbey, uh, where Dracula will now be operating out of. So I guess he just wants to, like... Meet his neighbor. Right, exactly. Get you to know, know the locals. <laughs> uh, along with Dr. Seward, there's John Harker, who's basically just a big bag of nothing. His fiance Mina Seward, the doctor's daughter, and Lucy Western, she is into Dracula's dark, broody, mysterious, dead Byronic. thing. Byronic thing. Well, like, she meets Dracula and immediately just starts quoting poetry about death yeah. to him. Yeah. So after meeting everybody, Lucy's clearly got a bit of a crush on Dracula and uh Dracula kind of immediately reciprocates by showing up in her room and sucking all her blood and killing her, and eventually turning her into a vampire. The film sort of moves on to a long stretch that's largely set within the grounds of the Seward Sanitarium, which also, I guess, is the Seward family home, mm -hmm. like from the way that the film uh, presents it. There's been this string of deaths, really all of Dracula's victims, and their mysterious nature has drawn the attention of a Professor Van Helsing, uh, who pretty immediately is like, yeah, these are vampires. You've got vampires. You're <laughs> riddled with vampires. And has to convince everyone that vampires are real and figure out who the vampire is. The initial suspicions are on Renfield, who keeps escaping seemingly at will and moving up the food chain of creatures from flies to spiders and eventually to uh, rats. It soon becomes apparent that Dracula is the vampire. Uh, he starts stalking Mina and sort of attacking her at night, sapping her strength. And uh, there's an amazing moment where Van Helsing notices that Dracula has no reflection, uh, which is a pretty telltale vampire sign. Mm -hmm. The film sort of becomes a battle of wills between Van Helsing and Dracula, Van Helsing and Harker and Seward in terms of trying to convince them about Dracula, Dracula and Mina, in terms of him trying to kind of take over her mind and her resisting. Renfield even, kind of trying to resist Dracula at times, but not always able to. And this all kind of climaxes with the revelation that on one of his visits, Dracula has gotten Mina to drink his blood, uh, which means she will now turn into a vampire when she dies. So there's not much time left. Dracula abducts Mina and takes her to Carfax Abbey, where Van Helsing and Harker follow. Uh, Renfield's also escaped again and made it there, but is killed by Dracula when Dracula assumes that Renfield purposely led Harker and Van Helsing there when really they just followed him when he escaped. Uh, after Renfield is killed, 
Van Helsing and Harker make it into Carfax Abbey, and the sun is rising, so Dracula tries to run down to the crypts before the sun can get him. He has to rest, of course, in the earth in which he was buried during the day, so now that the sun's up, they basically have him trapped. Harker finds Mina and discovers she's not yet dead, so she can still be saved. Uh, Van Helsing stakes Dracula. The end. Yeah. Ends with a shot of Harker and Mina walking up together up a staircase towards the sun Mm -hmm. while Van Helsing says, Oh, I will be there presently. I have other things to take care of. Presumably he needs to step out from behind the curtain and give the speech at the end of the movie that's no longer there. Yeah. There's a lot to talk about with this movie. And I think, like, the biggest thing is how boundary-pushing it is with, like, having seen all of these previous American horror movies that are, like, pulling the mask off of the person who is supposed to be the bad guy, whatever, and then this movie where it goes from the villagers telling Renfield, no, don't go there, like, we believe Dracula's a vampire, Renfield going, that's poppycock, Mm -hmm. and then cut to Dracula literally coming out of his coffin. Yeah. This movie is very upfront and explicit about this is a vampire, you are fucked. Yeah, the tone of things shift compared to a film like, say, The Bat Whispers, where, you know, we know that ultimately the bat is just a guy in a costume and we just need to catch him and unmask him. Mm -hmm. To suddenly the feeling in Dracula of Dracula just being this dominating force that you can't really do anything against because he's supernatural. Like, the only person who stands a chance is Van Helsing, and only because he knows what he's up against. Yeah, and has clearly spent his whole life studying this. Mm-hmm. He's an old man, and that's why he happens to know this stuff. He's had he's spent the time to know these things, whereas even though Dr. Seward is older and has been studying things about the mind and stuff, like, he has no idea what's going on. It's interesting that, like, and this is something about the novel, too, but that even though there's sort of a, an element of, like, vampires do exist, your science is, is wrong or whatever, but Helsing's still presented as a scientist, right? Mm-hmm. He's not presented as, like, an occult figure. So ultimately, like, the film is still a scientist prevailing over this, like, supernatural figure. Yeah, Helsing has a line that's, like, what's considered supernatural now is, like, the science tomorrow or something? Or am yeah, I just, like, it's, mixing it's, in things? It's the idea is supposed to be that, like, you just don't know what the science behind vampirism is, right? Is kind of Van Helsing's position. Yeah. It's a really strong film, and I think, obviously, a big part of that strength is, is Bela Lugosi. Yes, definitely agree with Bella Lugosi. Dwight Fry is a treasure. Oh, absolutely. I, I love Dwight Fry. When so much of the film is kind of set-bound and dialogue-driven, especially the, the back two-thirds, mm-hmm. it's really to its credit that it has such a strong cast. Like, Lugosi is, is masterful in this movie. He's got this kind of slow, careful delivery of his lines that kind of suggests his hypnotic power, but also kind of the fact that he's, like, centuries old and has centuries worth of caution and patience. You know, he doesn't need to go really anywhere in a hurry, except for in a few key moments of the film that end up kind of being pretty powerful because of what a contrast they are to how slowly he moves in the rest of it. He has these very controlled physical movements and expressions and hand gestures It's really clear to be able to see how his portrayal became so iconic 
because like he exudes this dynamic magnetism where everything in the film is drawn towards him in a way that's like it's so powerful Paul Wigner could only dream of <laughs> being able to be that kind of center of a movie totally like we've seen Paul Wegner try in Exa- The Magician. Yeah, exactly. What is it about Paul Wegner in The Magician versus Bela Lugosi here that seems to work for Lugosi? It's that as clearly dangerous as Lugosi is, as clearly otherworldly and as clearly powerful as he is, he's still charming. Do you think that comes through with his voice? It's then? it's his voice and his facial expressions. Mm-hmm. Like, there's a bit of a je ne sais quoi to Lugosi in terms of the way that he interacts with people and the way that he kind of has, like, a bit of a smirk, you know, on his face when he's dealing with Van Helsing or, you know, he can be charming around Mina in a way that Paul Wigner could really never pull off. Mm-hmm. Like, Wigner would try to do that in The Magician, but he always just came across as kind of like overbearing and creepy. Wigner, when he tried to be charming, came across as like, you know, the men's rights activist with the fedora saying, m'lady. I was Um, thinking like football players in high school. Oh, okay, yeah. Who like, I don't want to paint Wigner in the wrong light because I think he's really cool. Mm -hmm. Um, But I I think because he has this very dominating size Mm -hmm. that he's relied on that when it comes to acting. Sure. Rather than bringing in a bit of personality with his movements, it's been more, I have this size behind me. I mean, it certainly works in Lugosi's favor that he'd been playing the role, you know, every night on stage for years. That's a very good point, Um, because I've had a lot more practice. Yeah, but certainly you believe Lugosi as an aristocrat and you believe him as someone who can entertain a room. You, You can believe that he'd be a hit at parties you know, if he had to be social. <laughs> and that helps you believe why everyone would fall under his sway mm-hmm. a lot easier than when Wegner's tried to do similar things. Yeah, definitely. Like, you mentioned the power between Dracula and Van Helsing, mm-hmm. but, I don't know, I think the other thing that makes Dracula so convincing is the first time that we see Dracula is with Renfield's reactions to him. Yeah. And um, Dwight Fry does such an amazing job of, like, reacting to what Lugosi's putting on the table, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Like, he's... Fry does such an amazing job of playing basically two characters, right? Because there's sort of the prologue version of Renfield and the rest of the film's Renfield. It's not quite as extreme as, like, Janet Leigh in Psycho, Mm. but, like, if you think about the structure of this Dracula versus, say, the novel, right? In the novel... Harker's the one who goes to Transylvania, and then Harker's the one whose fiance is getting threatened by Dracula. So Harker's kind of our audience-identifying protagonist all the way through. In this film, just because of the changes that were made to align it more with the stage play and so on, we start with Renfield as our protagonist, and he's our audience identification character, and then he gets taken out by Dracula, essentially. You know, that must have been almost as shocking as... Janet Lee getting taken out in Psycho, if you really think about it, because mm. then, sure, Renfield isn't dead, but he's not the protagonist from that point on. He's been, you know, basically taken down a notch to supporting character because <laughs> that's how powerful Dracula is. Yeah. The film's Transylvanian prologue I want to talk about. For sure. Because it's, it's certainly, I think, the most impressive and innovative sequence in the movie overall. 
I would agree, yeah. That being said, like, I've seen a lot of critical discussion of this movie that basically goes along the lines of this. The prologue in Transylvania is great, and then once it gets to London, the movie's super dull and boring. That's like a very standard take on this film. Mm. And I totally, I, I have to disagree with that. I think that while it's true that once we get to England and the film aligns more with the stage play, that the atmosphere of the movie changes quite a bit, I think that what's more interesting about it is that focus change between in the prologue we're seeing Dracula's world, right? It's the world that he dominates. And then in the rest of the film, at Whitby basically, it's this battle of wills of who's dominant between Dracula and Van Helsing and Mina and Renfield all kind of intersecting. Those reviews, are they contemporary to when the film was released? Those are those are modern takes. Like, the standard modern take on this film is that, like, the intro in Transylvania is really cool, and then once we get to London, the film's super dull. If that sentiment was coming from reviews contemporary to the film, I would have suspected it's because the Transylvania intro is very similar to how a silent film would be staged and set mm-hmm. up. And it, yeah, it has some lines, but for the most part, you just have the score and the mood setting and everything. Whereas once you move to Whitby, it feels a lot more like... Like, you can feel the director and cinematographer trying to do what they can with, like, the limits of the technology. Mm-hmm. But for the most part, it's people sitting or standing around giving the exposition. Um, it, and there's only so much, like, creative visuals you can do with that. Yeah, absolutely. Like, I understand where that criticism comes from because I do see that, you know, the film becomes a lot of people standing around in drawing rooms talking about things. But I, I disagree that you can just write off everything that happens in the movie after it gets to England. I was thinking about the last Browning picture we saw for this podcast, which Mm. was The Unknown from 1927. Right. So that's like four or five years between. So obviously Browning would have um, improved as a director. And then we also have this missing piece of London After Midnight Mm -hmm. to see how Browning really evolved into more of a horror director because we had a lot of... (laughs) back and forth about where the unknown would fit in terms of a horror movie. Yeah. Um, Because it was more like Lon Chaney brought the horror, but that was it. In Dracula, you clearly see how Browning, it's not just the cinematographer Mm -hmm. doing whatever. Even though it becomes so dialogue heavy in the last two thirds, the way that it's delivered or even the content of Mm -hmm. what they're saying, Mm -hmm. it's not like, and then I went to the post office. And then I came home and put a stamp on my letter or whatever. It's not dry. They're being very um, imaginative with what they're saying. And I think that it clearly makes it worthwhile to watch that stuff. Yeah, I I couldn't agree with you more. I think that what I find really remarkable here is, you know, you say that Browning's evolved into a horror director, clearly. This movie's inventing American horror, right? Totally. Like, I think the closest thing to this movie in terms of atmosphere that we've already seen was maybe Cat in the Canary. Yeah. Are but, you thinking just, like, American stuff? Yeah, just American stuff. Okay, just from cool. an American perspective. Uh, that, like, in terms of atmosphere and, and visuals, Cat in the Canary was probably the closest to this. But Cat in the Canary was from a German expressionist director. Mm-hmm. And what I found really unique about watching this film in the context of the chronology... And I want to, I'm curious if you'll agree with this. This film creates a visual language and iconography and mood and atmosphere for horror that is not reliant 
on German expressionist styles. Like, this is, like, a, a, a uniquely new and American language of horror. And it's building on things that have come before, but we're not really seeing those kind of German expressionist tropes. Uh, it's new tropes. I would agree. I think uh, it does a, a very good job of building on what's been established with spooky castle, huge cavernous rooms with, like, light and <laughs> shadow being yeah. played. But still... Yeah, it, it's not like, oh, this is German Expressionist, you know? It's clearly something different. It's it certainly got the... still has that German connection. Totally, um, totally. Because, I mean, we've got cinematographer Carl Freund working on it, who, of course, came from that school. I, I, I just want to talk about him for a little bit, because I love the cinematography in this film. Mm -hmm. The very high contrast look of the film where you have these almost kind of glowing whites shining out from this really deep blackness. Like he wasn't afraid to let his blacks be really black and let the film be really dark. The film has these textures of fog or cobwebs or um, crumbling edifices that really lend it an extra layer on top of the black and white as well. And like you said, even though the film's very dialogue-driven and stage-bound, you know, there's still those attempts to find where can we put camera moves, you know, to be most effective, right? Not just to have the camera move because we can do it, but because we can only pick and choose our moments for when it can move, pick and choosing the best moments. And I think because of the limits of the sound technology, they find ways to do interesting framing mm -hmm. things. And, like, the best example of this is obviously when Van Helsing is noticing the lack of reflection from Dracula on the mirror in, like, the cigar case or whatever. Yeah. And, like, we hear the dialogue and we see the people moving in the mirror. They do really interesting things with framing for that way as well. Yeah. And then, of course, the technique of highlighting Lugosi's eyes with their own key lights yeah. is really fantastic. I think they're individual key lights, they are. too. It's yes. not like Captain Kirk in early Star Trek with, yeah. like, the beam of light over his eyes. No, it's just, like, individual. Yeah, it's like two pencil lights shooting into, directly into his eyes, which I'm sure wasn't comfortable for Lugosi, but, like, it's, it's really <laughs> a cool effect. There's so many memorable images in this film. You know, and then especially when you give it the the sets that it has, like Castle Dracula and Carfax Abbey being these massive, cavernous, crumbling stone structures that really just kind of define what the stock setting of a horror film looks like mm -hmm. for years after this. Kind of going back to a point you mentioned earlier about the castle being Dracula's world. Mm -hmm. It's so interesting seeing how he carries himself in, for lack of a better word, the Western world, mm -hmm. like in civilization. Yeah. Um, like he's not shy about approaching uh, like this woman selling flowers and yeah. like targeting her. And he's very calm being in this place. Yet he also just sticks out like a sore thumb, mm -hmm. um, especially in the interactions that he has with people. Like I'm thinking of when he first introduces himself to the rest of the cast at the theater. Yeah, he, he has the, I can go anywhere and do anything bearing of an aristocrat, but he also has the otheredness of a foreigner. Yeah. It's why some of the moments where he feels on edge 
or feels like the rug's been pulled out from under him are some of the most powerful in the movie. Yeah. You know, the the film wouldn't work as well as it does if Lugosi was the only strong member of the cast or if he didn't have anyone to play off of. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's it's really good that Edward Van Sloan is such a perfect like match for him as Van Helsing. Definitely. Uh, it must have helped that Van Sloan and Lugosi had already been performing against one another for two years on stage in the play. Oh, Sloan was Van Helsing in the play? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I mentioned that in our intro. Okay. Yeah, I think that definitely, when they meet on screen, it feels like they have history. Yeah, oh, absolutely. Like, Dracula's like, ah, Van Helsing, your name is known in my part of the world, or something like that. Yeah, it, like, I I absolutely love that about their interaction. The, The battle of wills scene between the two of them, that's sort of what I call it. Like, that scene, you know, where, where he's trying to put his thrall over Van Helsing, and Van Helsing resists him, but, like, not easily, mm-hmm. right? Where there's clearly, like, some wiggle room there uh, before he pulls out the crucifix. Like, that scene is just, like, so filled with, like, this almost, like, electric tension between the two of them. You know, Van Sloan is great in that role. He's controlled, cautious... He's nearly unflappable. He's clearly highly competent. You get the sense that he's very experienced. I totally agree with you. Ever since I was a kid, I felt there was sort of an unspoken feeling that, like, this may not even be his first encounter with Dracula. Yeah. When I was a kid, like, so strong was his performance in this film and so strong was that sense of unspoken backstory that I actually thought that all of Edward Van Sloan's future appearances in Universal Monster movies were all also Van Helsing. He plays different characters, Yeah, he, right? he plays different characters, but they're all the same archetype. They're all the, like, older kind of scientist character who knows better. And so because they're all kind of the same archetype, and because I was a kid, I just thought they were all the same character. <laughs> and I thought that there was, like, just this rough series of, like, the mummy, and then Dracula, and then Dracula's daughter, and then Frankenstein, that, like, Van Helsing appears in. The That's, Van Helsing Chronicles. Right, exactly. This is not the case, unfortunately. No. And then, like, as good as Lugosi and Van Sloan are, of course, it's it's very hard to say that they are not at least equaled by Dwight Fry. Yeah, just the change from polite, well-mannered guy saying, like, well, I'm sorry, but the carriage driver understands that it's a matter of business for me. I yeah. just must go <laughs> to meet this carriage. He's so, like, unassuming and mild-mannered. Yeah. Like, just... Oh, aren't you having any? Like <laughs> it's and then and then from that to like one of cinema's all-time greatest raving maniacs in like the rest of the movie. And like he mixes in mm-hmm. Renfield Prime, I guess like <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, he switches back and forth. Yeah, and like you can see it most clearly when um he's meeting Van Helsing for the first time. Yeah. And, like, you also kind of see it when he has, like, these moments of, like, no, you need to take me now away from here. Like, I don't want to be doing these things. Please, like, take me away from here. By the way, you guys are fucked. Like, Van Helsing, you know too much to live. Like, (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Oh, so good. His his performance is so delightfully manic, but he manages to give Renfield, like, layer upon layer. Mm -hmm. Like, he renders the character as dangerous and delusional, but also humorous in scenes, pathetic in others, uh, sympathetic in in a lot of them, uh, in turn, like, begging Dracula not to kill him at the end of the film. Um, You know, his rats 
monologue in the film. Like, that's just one of the movie's standout moments for me. It's a prime example of this film and its cast selling moments that shouldn't work. Telling instead of showing. What you should be doing in a movie visually is showing us Renfield's vision of Dracula, and instead we get it told to us in a monologue. And that, that shouldn't work, but Fry gives that monologue such life and makes it so hypnotic to watch that it ends up making that moment sell on film. And so it's interesting how he'll go from that mm -hmm. to earlier in the film being part of the comedy that comes through with the movie. Right, yeah, um, like bantering with Martin and stuff. Yeah. I remember when we were first encountering the comedic horror of, like, the bat. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think it was actually in that episode where you brought up Dracula as a an example of a horror movie with, like, comedic characters rather than a comedy with horror characters. Yeah. Given that this film is so boundary-pushing, mm -hmm. with it being, no, this is a horror, not a comedic horror... I appreciated the timing of these comedic moments because it offered up like a breath of air for an audience of its time. It's it's quite literally comic relief. Yeah, and it's interesting that like, I mean like the first one comes after Lucy is killed. Mm -hmm. Like it's in her autopsy and it's a very solemn moment. And then it cuts to Renfield's screaming about <laughs> Martin having taken away his spider. Yeah. How he doesn't want flies if he can get a nice big juicy spider. Mm -hmm. I mean, Martin's obviously like the other comic relief. Mm -hmm. But like, having a character who's supposed to be so terrifying, having Renfield, the character, be so terrifying yet also so like having a, a way of laughing at it, I mm -hmm. guess, or laughing at the the situation. I don't know. I think that's really interesting uh, as a way of positioning the comedy within this. And Renfield can kind of get away with it because he's mad. He can have those shifts yeah. and be kind of whatever he needs to be in that scene. But I think that the real significant thing this film figured out, with, or, you know, if we're talking about the evolution from those horror comedies to a true horror film, is that, like, Martin's not a lead character. Yeah. He's he's you could cut him out of the movie entirely and not miss any of the plot. He's just there for the comic relief. He's not one of the Harker isn't doing pratfalls, right? Yeah. You know, speaking of this tendency of the film to tell rather than show, like it's one of the unfortunate side effects of the movie's reliance on the stage play for its base is that other than a few evocative vignettes once we get to London, so much of the action really takes place off screen. Mm -hmm. I think that this would be a more crippling problem, and you kind of addressed this earlier, and I totally agree with you. This would be a worse problem if Helen Chandler was not a better actress. Yeah. Like, she is saddled with delivering multiple monologues describing off-screen happenings, but she performs them marvelously. She sells the mood with these kind of very evocative and hypnotic recitations. You know, while it betrays Dracula's origins as a stage play that so much of it remains unseen, Chandler's delivery is strong enough to allow us to conjure those scenes in our imaginations where they then have the potential for even greater power because they only exist in our minds. Yeah, I think the scene that's kind of most evocative of that is when she's talking about her dream that she had, like, the first night Dracula actually came to her. Yeah. Um, and even her interactions with, like, between Van Helsing and Harker, mm -hmm. uh, the way she 
will shift, like when she's semi-vampire, mm-hmm. whatever, uh, and interacting with Harker, um, and like the way she looks at his neck. Yeah. Uh, it always reminds me of a cat about to pounce. Yeah, she pulls off those switches between the Mina who Dracula is killing and the Mina who's falling under Dracula's thrall really, really well. Yeah. I always have really liked the monologue where she describes talking to Lucy yeah. and then recognizing, like remembering halfway through that Lucy's dead and Lucy like freaking out and taking off and the fact that like Chandler just describes this scene but you can picture it so vividly from the way that she delivers the monologue. The lines she has to give are pretty bulky. I don't mm-hmm. think I would be able to get through them, you know? <laughs> yeah. Uh, so kudos to her for doing that. When I was commencing to sleep. <laughs> commencing to get drowsy, actually, <laughs> which is why I love that line. Is It's like, it's not just like, oh, I was starting to go to sleep. It's no, I was starting to have the feeling of maybe being tired, right? Yeah. Like, <laughs> like, Dracula is definitely in some ways an awkward film in the way that it straddles the transition from silent to sound. It has these incredible evocative visuals, or it has these stunning dialogue performances, but it doesn't always manage to have both in the same scene. Mm -hmm. When it does manage that is when the film really manages to reach its most powerful moments, I think, uh, when it manages to marry those two things. Yeah, I would agree. Browning's decision to shoot so much of the film in a silent style might make it a bit of a difficult film for modern audiences to watch, but something about the film's slow, deliberate, kind of carefully exact and precise pacing suggests to me something of the practiced, ageless, indomitable nature of the antagonist. Like, the film is Dracula. Like, as he becomes more frenzied and desperate towards the film's end, so does the editing of the movie. Totally. Definitely. That's a really good point. Between, like, Dracula's speech, his physicality, and the film's editing itself. Mm-hmm. That's a really neat thing to point out. Yeah, like when he is cornered, he becomes frenzied and the film gets faster. Yeah. The special effects, though, are probably one of the film's like actual legitimate letdowns. Well, I mean, yeah, I was making a list of the special effects in this movie, and there's matte paintings, mm-hmm. there's superimposition of, like, fog, maybe, mm-hmm. uh, and then there's, like, weird lighting. Well... That's it? Yeah, I think that what really the film does is it doesn't have a lot of special effects, uh, unlike, you know, say Nosferatu, which was, like, chock full of them. So what it does a lot of times is just work around not having special effects, you know, hey, look, what, there's a dog running uh, off screen. Yeah. You know? Like, nobody fades through walls in this movie or vanishes or transforms. The stuff that is pretty hokey is, as a special effect is the creatures. Yeah. Like, the spiders. Would those have been hokey for, like, the time? Possibly. Like, maybe not the bats. Like, the bats look pretty bad now. I don't know how bad they would have looked at the time. But, like, the spiders in this movie are really fake-looking. Like, Well, like, to be fair, and this is coming from someone who is actually an anarachnophobe, there's only one shot of, like, this creepy-looking spider running up the wall, but it's also dark enough that you just really see movement. Well, and then there's the spider that Martin takes away from Renfield that looks like a creepy crawly. Like, Oh, yeah, that's true. There is... 
a close-up of a spider leaving a coffin-like hole uh, <laughs> at the same time as uh, Dracula's wives and Dracula himself awaking for the first time. The real creatures in this movie are weird and cool, like the armadillos that just hang out in Dracula's castle. Yeah, um, I, I don't think armadillos live in Transylvania. No, they do not. <laughs> um, but, like, it's the fake creatures that are just a little bit too obviously fake. Yeah. Um, but what I find really interesting is, like, because they don't, won't show Dracula transform or anything, we get these scenes like Dracula will, will see him opening his casket lid, and then the camera will cut to something else, and then we'll cut back and Lugosi's already emerged from the casket. It's not a cut. It's like the camera's looking, seeing his hand come out. We'll go and look at the window to see the last lights of the sun, mm -hmm. and then come back and Dracula is like kind of standing up. So it's it's not a cut, it's kind of like a look away. Yeah, and, and they do a similar thing whenever he attacks a victim. Like, we'll see a bat flying through a window, probably suspended on a fishing line, and then it'll, you know, kind of move over to the victim, and then when we move back, Lugosi's standing there. Mm -hmm. And I feel like despite the fact that they're not doing an effect, that they're basically just working around not having it, the scenes, these scenes are handled in the same way every single time, right? Like, every single time Dracula gets out of his coffin or attacks a victim, it has this same rhythm, uh, which means the scenes feel to me less like cop-outs and more like rituals. Okay. Uh, in the sense that it's the same thing every time. So there's kind of an um, a expected rhythm to this is how a Dracula attack goes. Like, even the way that the film always fades to black before we ever see Dracula actually bite someone, it's something that becomes powerful through repetition. It's obviously a censor's note that we don't ever actually see him bite someone. But he kind of, for me, like, grows in power in your mind from what we don't see him do. Mm. I think that, for me, the, the real place where this movie kind of falls flat a little bit is its ending. Dracula's staked entirely off-screen, with only Lugosi's, like, distant moans to tell us of his demise. Um, it's probably another example of the film trying to head off controversy by avoiding, like, a gruesome detail that might anger censors, but it renders the end of the film that's otherwise kind of building in intensity pretty thoroughly anticlimactic, you know? And then you just get Van Helsing's odd farewell and them walking up the stairs and this kind of quick sudden ending. I always see the ending as Van Helsing having to, like, baby Harker a little bit. <laughs> um, because, like... Helsing's down there, and he's like, cool, all right, we gotta, we gotta do this. And Harker's like, where's Mina? Oh my god, the horror of it all. And Van Helsing's like, okay, well, Dracula's in this box, and is about to open up the other box, but Harker comes in, and Van Helsing's just like, putting the lid down. Right. So Harker doesn't have to see anything. And he's like, cool, go find a rock or something for me to stake him in. <laughs> and then as we follow Harker looking for a rock, we hear cracking sounds as Van Helsing's making a stake. Yeah. And then like, cool, I, I, I have the rock or steel thing or whatever. And it's like, cool, go, go find Mina. Like, he's she's not in the box. Busy. Like, exactly. I, I always find the ending kind of humorous in that sense because it's like the audience itself is getting babied a little bit. Right. Um, because it, like what could possibly be happening is too horrific for our own eyes. Yeah, I just wish that like it went out with a bit of more of a bang than a whimper because it always feels to me like the film kind of whimpers out at the end. Yeah. There are parts of this movie where you can see how the 
filmmakers had seen Nosferatu. Yeah. It's interesting to then compare what the vampire in Nosferatu was symbolizing, which was contagion and the plague, right. versus what Dracula is here, because it, it's definitely not the plague. No. In light of learning about the invasion literature genre, which I talked briefly about in the intro, I think that's kind of interesting to think about as, like, Dracula the foreigner coming in and invading mm-hmm. that way. Yeah. But I also was, like, thinking about the vampire as something that's yes. insatiable, something that's, like, constantly consuming. And you kind of see that most clearly with Renfield, who's now under, like, Dracula's thrall and is just consistently, like, I need to be eating flies. I need to be consuming these bugs, these lesser beings. Mm-hmm. The emphasis of Dracula targeting women, Mm -hmm. as well as, like, the sense of insatiable sexual desire Mm -hmm. or something. And I mean, like, that is something that comes up in vampire movies to come. And I wouldn't say it's not in this movie, but it's not explicit in this movie. I was thinking about Dracula as symbolizing as the vampire this insatiable sexual desire. And then kind of tying it back to contagion, I was thinking about venereal diseases. Sure, right, because <laughs> he, he transmits vampirism to his victims. Yeah, and post-World War I, uh, I mean, like, venereal diseases like syphilis and stuff like that had always been around mm-hmm. since, like, the 1500s, but there was, like, a resurgence of talking about it sure. post-World War I. Yeah, it, it was just something to, like, kind of think about in the context of the novel being written, the play itself in England being performed, and now this. I think the key thing to tie together, you know, the invasion theme verse and the, the sexuality themes and stuff like that is to recognize that Dracula as a book is racist. Mm. And the story is a racist story. Definitely. What the story is about is, you know, because you're totally right in identifying Dracula's sexual appetites as insatiable. If we read vampirism as a metaphor for sexuality, which given the hetero nature of Dracula's attacks, we really can't help but do that. What this movie is talking about is that continental men, foreign men, you know, Eastern Europeans, are sexual in a way that, like, the proper upstanding British man who's all tied up and reserved is not, you mm-hmm. know. It's improper to be that sort of openly sexual and, and, and open about how voracious your appetites are. Uh, the continental man is not proper in that way. And because of that, he is a danger to your innocent English women, right? I know the whole idea of vampire as, like, vampire and sexuality really comes in in later films. Um, I always feel uncomfortable bringing it into this movie, probably because the Jekyll and Hyde with Frederick March does a better way of talking about sexuality mm-hmm. and things like that for, rather than this film. And yeah. I wonder if it's that racist, not even undertones, but like the racism that is there is part of why it feels uncomfortable to me. I think so, because I think that... You know, really, if you ask yourself the way we have for every other film on this podcast, like, what is the fear that this film is speaking to? This film is speaking to the fear that foreigners are going to come and they're going to enthrall your women. Yeah. That's what this movie's about. It's it's a racist story. I still love this movie and I love the book and it's something that's really dear to me, but it's like, you just have to be able to recognize if you're a fan of, especially like Victorian English culture, that like, it's racist. Yeah. 
do we want to move into ranking? Sure, if you're ready. Yeah. When looking at ranking, I, I first looked at our highest ranked American films. Mm-hmm. Phantom of the Opera's at number four, Cat in the Canaries at number five, and that's really it. Mm-hmm. And then the obvious film to compare this to is Nosferatu, yeah. currently sitting at number three. I think we need to decide is, you know, before we move anywhere else, we need to decide is this better or worse than Nosferatu. So I'm interested in, in hearing what you think. I think they are both very, very, very strong films. Mm-hmm. I don't know, dude. I think if you kind of break it down, I've been thinking about it in this way. I've been thinking about breaking it down by like an element to element comparison. Okay. So if we directly compare Orlock and Dracula, mm-hmm. uh, Max Shrek and Bela Lugosi, I have to say that I can't really find the heart to put one above the other because ultimately you have to recognize that those two guys basically decided what the two kinds of vampire were going to be. Especially for, like, male vampires. Yeah. Like, those are the two, right? You're either the monster or the, like, charming uh, Lothario. I think there's an argument to be made that there's, like, a third type once Anne Rice invents Louis in Interview with the Vampire. But that's basically just a Dracula who it's okay to fuck because he's not actually a bad guy. (laughs) And that's, like, where you get then Angel and um, Edward from Twilight and so on. But really, those are the two. So I think they're kind of... They have to be equal because they have, like, an equal legacy. Okay. As special effects go, you kind of have to give the upper hand to Nosferatu because it actually does more. Yeah, it, it goes for it. As far as the writing... Writing, uh, maybe to be more specific, the structure of the film, I find Dracula to be much more engaging in its structure. Yeah, it, it, it has... Flows. It flows a lot better because it doesn't extend out the opening so far, but it also doesn't, like, rush... Like, it, it's, it's, it's certainly structured, I think, a little bit more solidly. It still has some problems with pacing. It's not perfect in its pacing, but I think it's a little better off than Nosferatu. Yeah. In terms of cinematography, I think I prefer Dracula. It's maybe an unfair comparison because Nosferatu, they didn't have the technological ability to do night shooting or even just shooting in the dark at all. But the fact that Dracula is so wreathed in blackness and shadow, I think really gives it a visual advantage over Nosferatu. Just in terms of the other characters who aren't the vampire, Dracula's got the better Van Helsing. Dracula's got the better Renfield. The Harker, like, Harker always sucks. Yeah. So it's hard to compare. So the thing I'm really, like, interested in, because it's not as obvious as the other, is Mina in Dracula or Ellen from Nosferatu? It's really tough, because Ellen actually gets to do something with Harker being... Is he even called Harker in Nosferatu? No, he's, he's Hutter. Hutter. Hutter is such an idiot, and <laughs> Ellen actually gets to do, like, all the cool things. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas in this, like, Mina is so boxed in with the traditional roles of, like, Victorian society and blah, 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 feminism stuff. But seeing how the actress breaks out of that when Mina starts to become vampiric is really cool. Mm-hmm. I don't know if it's fair to compare the two because they are... They're very different. They're very different characters. Yeah, and I think you've hit the nail on the head that, like, Ellen actually gets to do things. And Mina just really is the damsel to be saved. 
Yeah. So if we say that, like, certainly Ellen maybe has an edge over Mina, the vampires are about equal, the Harkers are about equal, Nosferatu has better effects, Dracula better cinematography, Dracula slightly better pacing, and a better Renfield and a better Van Helsing, like, do we have an idea of what's coming out on top? Yeah, with all of that standing, I think Dracula comes out on top, as well as if I had to choose between which to watch again, uh, I would watch Dracula over Nosferatu. Okay. So, uh, if we're in agreement that Dracula is going above Nosferatu, that puts it in at least the top three. Yeah. So, well, <laughs> where do we go from there? What do you think about Phantom Carriage and Caligari? Well, one if, and two, respectively. Yeah, if we're if we're kind of moving up the list, Dracula versus Caligari. <laughs> um, I don't know if I'm comfortable making these comparisons now. I know it's we're starting to get up into stratosphere territory. Like even Dracula versus Nosferatu, like that's a big drag out fight. We're sure to get some angry notes about that one. Yeah. But now, like, yeah, we're 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 up in the high high altitudes. Can I tell you my gut feeling? Yeah, go ahead. My gut feeling is that, like, I like Dracula better than I like Dr. Caligari. Like, I sure respect Cabinet of Dr. Caligari, but, like, I think I like Dracula better. I don't know if that makes me more of, like, like an Anne Rice boy than a Tim Burton boy, but, like, I, well, I like Dracula better. Well, even just, like, thinking about how they are both innovating styles. Yeah. Like, Caligari was, like, it's own thing. <laughs> yeah. Whereas Dracula is like, yeah, it's own thing, but you can see its roots in other things, right? I also think there's something to be said about, like, if Caligari invents a style, right? German Expressionist. And if Dracula invents a style, we'll call it American Gothic Horror, more films were able to use what Dracula invented than what Caligari invented, right? Like, for other films to use expressionism, it had to be watered down significantly from what's in Caligari. Whereas, like, you can kind of go from Dracula to Frankenstein to yeah. The Mummy, you know, in a much clearer through line of style. Okay, so it sounds like you're saying Dracula could replace Caligari at number two. Yeah, I mean, unless you have, like, a, a strong argument for Caligari being better than Dracula? I don't. Okay. I mean, like, I think... The themes are more compelling to me in Caligari oh, about like madness. Okay, and I think you could say something about more things have taken those stylistic elements from Dracula. It's more um, feasible to do that, but like to have the the guts to do what Caligari did. Sure, I mean it's also important to remember that like they made Caligari artsy as a business choice to appeal to, like, <laughs> artsy people. Fair enough. I, yeah. Okay, then how about this? Uh, versus Phantom Carriage. This is so hard. This is really hard. Like, how do you compare these two movies? Phantom Carriage is so good. Mm. And it's a movie I really respect. Mm -hmm. And it's talking about a lot of, like, really important topics and issues. Mm -hmm. But, like, there's nothing central in Phantom Carriage that draws me into it and holds me there the way that Lugosi does in Dracula. Like, Lugosi's such a strong, central presence at, at the core of Dracula that, like, it makes Dracula so much more invigorating and electric to watch. Like, when I see Phantom Carriage, I feel like... I I am going to die when I finish that movie. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. it is so draining. Uh, and Dracula, I just feel invigorated when I watch it because there's something so... 
Electric. Electric about seeing Lugosi on screen and, and watching him perform. That being said, like, these are horror movies, so I don't know if, like, the fact that Phantom <laughs> Carriage makes me feel awful after I watch it is really a bad thing. So the horror of a foreigner coming into your... Oh, boy. Your country. Oh, this is like, I don't yeah, like that's, talking that, about this. No, this is a good point. Yeah, Phantom Carriage, is, the, the central horror of Phantom Carriage is poverty and how that leads to, like, disease and alcoholism yeah. and, like, spousal abuse and stuff. Versus, like, Dracula's horror is like, wow, I really don't like it when immigrants come and date my girlfriend. I really like Dracula more as a movie. Like, it's, Phantom Carriage is less problematic. Phantom Carriage is saying better things and is about better things. But I, I do kind of like Dracula better, and I don't know how to really reconcile that. Well, this is a horror movie ranking list, mm -hmm. so I think it's okay to keep Phantom Carriage at the top, then. Are we keeping it at the top because cause poverty and disease is more relatable as a fear, or just because we're giving it points for being less problematic? For me, it's Phantom Carriage is showing how you yourself can be the source of horror mm. versus the other. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. I think you're right. Like, I think... I think ultimately Phantom Carriage is still scarier because it can happen to you. <laughs> Whereas like Dracula's still a little bit more abstract because like it's it's got you know, it's about a vampire and it's about it's a little bit more fantastical. Yeah. So it's not beating out number one, but is it beating out Caligari? I think so. I think I think nice. it's gonna go at number two because like I, I, I was trying to I was Slowly trying to push it to number one. I didn't quite get it there, but I think if I was able to <laughs> argue that it could almost be number one, then that means it's definitely number two. Cool. All right, so coming in on the list at number two is Dracula from 1931, directed by Todd Browning. If you would like to see this list, you can go to our website, screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com, and you can also find our ask or appeal box there, so you can send us a quick note if you would like to contest the standing. If you don't like Tumblr, you can email us at screamscenepodcast at gmail.com, or you could even, like, yell at us on Twitter, at underscore screamscene. Uh, let's have a fruitful discussion rather than just yelling, though. Yeah, please tell us all the reasons why we were wrong for putting Dracula above Nosferatu. <laughs> you can find Scream Scene on iTunes, and we update every Wednesday. So uh, we'd love it if you would subscribe to make sure you get us in your inbox every Wednesday. And... Leave a review uh, so that people can find us more easily on the iTunes charts. And no matter how you listen to us, uh, just if there's people that you know that you think might like the podcast, tell them about it and help more people get to listen to us discuss <laughs> old horror movies. Help the screams echo far. Oh, that's, that's good. <laughs> what are we watching next week, Ben? Uh, next week we are watching Dracula from 1931. Uh... Directed by George Melford. For Universal Studios. Uh... In Spanish. What? <laughs> it's going to be uh, an interesting discussion to explain this one. But yes, next week's film is what is commonly known as Spanish Dracula. Spanish Dracula. Mm -hmm. Great. We'll see you guys next week, Creatures of the Night. Bye. Bye. Bye.